Today's text falls between two passages in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16, that deal with money and possessions. Uh, you heard from Pastor Ben as he preached last week on the dishonest manager. So this passage uh, we're dealing with this morning starts off with Luke telling us that the Pharisees, who were known for being lovers of money, they scoffed or ridiculed or made a mockery of what Jesus was teaching. And Jesus rebukes them for their scoffing, but he doesn't mention money at all in his response. And then he goes to a short passage uh, in which Jesus teaches about divorce and remarriage and concludes um, this passage with that, which has called some, caused some um, Bible scholars to actually wonder why in the world is this passage where it is? It doesn't seem to fit, doesn't seem to make sense. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 16, reading verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and, remar and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What should you do when your values clash with kingdom values, with God's authority over your life? When your values come into, into a clash with God's values and God's authority, what do you do? Which has the greatest influence over your life, your values or God's values? What loyalties often keep you from being completely loyal to the kingdom of Christ? What idols stand in the way of your complete obedience to the authority of Christ? These are all questions that we as disciples of Christ must continually wrestle with throughout our Christian journey. I want to highlight this morning three critical truths that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Our topic, uh, sermon topic is, this is how you get into the kingdom. So the first critical truth that Jesus taught was that if the kingdom is already here, which it is, then there must be a king of that kingdom and he must have authority. His words must carry a lot of weight. This is what Luke says. The Pharisees heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, with words of authority, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So all these things, that phrase, 
refers to the things that Jesus went about preaching regarding the different kingdom with a different king that he came to set up. Jesus preached that this kingdom that he was setting up with his arrival was devoid of corruption, exploitation, injustice, love of self, and love of money, all of which the Pharisees to whom he was speaking were exhibiting. This was a different kingdom. He preached that this kingdom was based on righteousness, justice, love, and goodness. He preached that in this kingdom, the first would be last, and the last would be first. He preached that you must humble yourself, we must all, humble ourselves and become as little children in order to be able to enter this kingdom. He preached that this king would rule this kingdom with authority and faithfulness unlike the religious authorities who were abusing their authority and abusing their sacred office. He preached that heaven and earth would pass away before even one dot of the law, one dot of his words ever passed away. He preached that he himself was the fulfillment of everything that the prophets and the law said about him. He preached that these priests and these Pharisees, that they were not the way to God and what, they're teaching, what they were teaching was not the way to God either. He preached that religion and the personalities of religious leaders can never transform people. Now that was true back then, that is true now. The only thing that can transform people's lives is the preaching of the gospel about the kingdom of God. Amen? The only thing that can transform people's lives is the preaching of the gospel about the kingdom of God because the preaching of the gospel has the words of the king in them and the words of the king that they represent have authority. That is why preaching is, is, uh, is filled with such authority. It is filled with the authority of Christ himself, the kingdom about which we are preaching. Now, if you've been following the news in recent weeks, you have heard, I'm sure, at least one, maybe two, maybe all of the following headlines concerning the actions of prominent preachers and leaders, religious leaders that have hurt the kingdom of God. First of which is this. Prominent Atlanta pastor visits LGBTQ church to apologize for how the pastors have treated the LGBT community. Did you hear that one? Can you imagine going to apologize for a lifestyle that God does not approve of? Warsaw, Indiana pastor resigns before his congregation because, in his own words, quote, 20 years ago, I committed adultery. I didn't make a mistake. I didn't have an affair. I didn't make a misjudgment. I sinned. I need to say that, and you deserve to hear it. That was 27 years ago, not 20. A woman in the congregation grabbed the mic and responded. And I was only 16 when you took away my virginity on your office floor. You did things to my teenage body that never should have been done, end of quote. 
Next one, Colorado pastor resigns, this was just two weeks ago, after defrauding his congregation out of $1.3 million in a fraudulent investment scheme. Here's the final one. World-renowned Grammy Award-winning gospel recording artist is quoted as saying, every Grammy Award-winning hit I have ever recorded was done naked, as if we needed to know that. And so the list goes on and on of pastors and religious leaders who have abused and profaned their sacred office, leaving the sheep that they're, they're leading very, very confused. But what, what transforms people's lives is not the personality of the pastor. It is not the pastor himself. It is the preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God it is not the personalities that we tend to make celebrities of. I was reading Ed Stetzer a few weeks ago, and he says this. I quote him. He says, there is an increasing body count of pastors whose ability raised them to prominence before their character was ready for them, end of quote. And so we need, as a church and as leaders, to regain the moral high ground by preaching and living out the message about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I need to do it. You need to do it. Because only the preaching of the message about the kingdom of Jesus Christ has the power in it to, trans to transform people's lives. Because the words of the king that we preach have absolute authority in them. No preaching has authority that is not rooted in the message about the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is its king, and what he said, his words, have authority. This is what he said. Gary even mentioned this earlier. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and teach and preach with that authority. That's our first point this morning. Our first point is that if the kingdom is already here, which it is, then there is a king of that kingdom, and his words have absolute authority. Here's our second teaching. The second thing that Jesus taught in this passage was that self-justification will never get you into this kingdom. Here's what he says. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, how did the Pharisees respond to what Jesus was teaching them? To the rebuke that he gave to them? They responded by justifying themselves before men. Now, raise your hand if you have never justified yourselves before men. We all have a time or two. Our first response when confronted with something that we either did or did not do tends to be to explain it away in such a way that we make, it, we make ourselves come out looking better than we actually are. We call that self-preservation. And I'm told that self-preservation is the first law of nature. That is what we typically tend to do meaning that our default is always to save face that we don't come off looking more guilty or more foolish 
than we really are. The Bible's name for that is self-righteousness or justifying ourselves before men. Now, Jesus once told a parable to illustrate this. Or in other words, he wanted people to really understand what this really was about. So he told a story so that people could actually um, understand in their own vernacular what he was talking about. And in this story, Jesus said that two men went up to the temple to pray, which is a good thing. It is always good to go to God's temple or God's house to pray, provided that you're going to pray for the right reasons and with the right motive. And Jesus said that one of these men, one of these two men, one was a, a tax collector who was regarded as being very sinful. The other was a Pharisee who, who, who thought that he was, in fact, more righteous than anybody else. And so as they went up to pray, Jesus said, this self-righteous Pharisee stood off by himself. He couldn't even commingle or mingle with others. He wanted to stand apart from himself to show himself that he was more righteous than anybody else. And this was his prayer. In fact, it wasn't even a prayer to God. It wasn't a prayer at all. It was really a boast. Because who, who prays like this? He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that sinful tax collector over there because I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. So he's not, you don't pray like that. He's really boasting of his own self-righteousness. But Jesus says that the tax collector stood in the corner. He was even afraid to lift his, his eyes to heaven. All he could do was to beat his chest and to come up with a prayer, and this was, his, this was his prayer. This was the only prayer that he could pray. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There was nothing that he could say on his own behalf. He was guilty, and so he was crying out to God to be merciful to him, a sinner. And then Jesus gave this punchline to his story. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who humbled himself before God went down to his house justified rather than the other. It is not the one who justifies himself who is justified, but the one who humbles himself, the one who becomes as a little child, the one who realizes he has nothing whatsoever to bring to offer God, but to humbly cry out to him for mercy. Here is the moral of the story. Justification before God can never be earned. You can never earn it. It can only be received as a gift that God gives. Because Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself, who boasts of his own righteousness, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I believe that there are two reasons why it is folly to justify yourself to try to, be, to appear to be more righteous than you really are. One is, that, one is that God already knows your heart anyway. So if he does, why try to impress somebody else with your own self-righteousness? Because God already knows. Secondly, it is what God thinks of you that counts, and God knows your heart God who knows your heart says that justifying yourself is an abomination to him. Now the Greek word for abomination means something that God considers so offensive 
that he won't even look at it. You can't even bring that to him as an offering because he will reject it. It is offensive. It is obnoxious to him. And I believe the reason why self-righteousness is an offense to God is because it mocks God's righteousness. It says to God, your righteousness is not as good as the one that I can produce for myself. So, I want to use a more respectable term. I was going to say to something with your righteousness, but I'm not going to say that. But you know what I mean? We're, we're saying to God, your righteousness, what Jesus did on the cross to uh, purchase my sins and to bring about my righteousness, that is, not, that is not good enough. I must produce my own righteousness. So it exalts our righteousness above the righteousness that God offers us through the death that Jesus Christ willingly um, went through for us on the cross. We can never get into God's kingdom by exalting ourselves, by showing to people how good we are compared to how bad they are. And so rather than exalting ourselves, Jesus says, we must humble ourselves and become as little children because only by becoming such can we enter his kingdom. Here's the third critical thing that Jesus taught in this passage. The preaching of the gospel compels us to get into the kingdom. He says that the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. So there are two basic eras that Jesus pinpoints in this passage. One is the era of the law, which was looking ahead and promising good news. So the law promised good news. And the, the other is the era of grace, marked by the preaching of good news. So there are two law, two um, eras. One, the law that promised a Messiah and promised that good news, the good news of the Messiah would, would happen. The other was the preaching of grace, preaching of good news. The law looked forward to a Messiah. Jesus was the fulfillment of, of what the law, in fact, promised. But notice that the dividing line between these two eras, the law and the preaching of the good news, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist preached a message of repentance or preparation. He said to people, prepare for the coming Messiah by repenting or changing your ways and changing your hearts toward God. When Jesus came, the Messiah, he ushered in this new era, the kingdom, because he started preaching a similar message to what John preached, a message of repentance, saying that he, in fact, had come to establish this kingdom and the way into it was to, in fact, repent and turn from your sins and turn to God. Now here's what I think you may find very confusing in this particular verse that talks about forcing one's way into the kingdom. Jesus says that everyone, as the message is being preached, everyone is forcing or everyone forces their way into the kingdom of God. That is a little bit confusing. Here's how most versions of the Bible render that verse. Everyone 
is forcing his way into it or everyone tries to enter it by force. However, when you look around you, I'm sure that you would agree with me that not everybody is rushing to get into God's kingdom, is there? In fact, quite the opposite. Most people are completely rejecting God's kingdom altogether. The key to understanding this verse is in the use of the Greek word or the Greek verb for force, which is used for force. I'm not going to tell you what that is because I can't even pronounce it myself. But this verse, this verb, this Greek verb actually means to apply force, to apply force. However, those of you who are English and grammar scholars, you'll be able to follow me here. You know that in English we have something called the active voice and the passive voice. And in the active voice, the subject is the one that is carrying out the action. So the subject is applying force to something. In the passive voice, however, force is being applied to the object. Greek scholars assert that the verb, the, the verb here is in the passive voice, which means that force is being applied to everyone to get into the kingdom. Not, people are not pressing or forcing their way into the kingdom as though they are entitled to it, but there is something that is compelling them or forcing them to get into the kingdom. What is that force? That is the preaching of the message of the gospel about the kingdom of God. So we can't force our way into the kingdom, but we are being forced and compelled to enter by the preaching of the gospel. We are being given an opportunity, if you will, to enter the kingdom of God based on the gospel that is preached. And then Jesus goes on to say, obviously, that the law has been put away, done with. We are no longer required to keep, basically, the tenets of the law because Jesus came and fulfilled the law. However, Jesus qualifies this in this passage. He qualifies what he has to say by, by providing a very important example. He says that there, even while the law itself has been abolished in that it is no longer required, we're not required to circumcise, we're not required to bring sacrifices, we're not required to um, do all of these things that the law um, required us to do. He says, however, that there are certain commitments that are still binding. He gives us one of those examples. And that example has to do with the issue of divorce and remarriage. Jesus doesn't, doesn't really go into a big, long teaching on this. He only gives us uh, one or two lines um, on that. But basically, he says here that this important institution called marriage must remain unbroken because to break it is to break a commitment that we make to another person in the presence of God. And not only do we do that, but when we break that commitment, we also set up adultery because obviously the divorced person may seek to remarry. Now this is a very confusing teaching. I'm not here necessarily to get into it, 
I'm simply saying that what Jesus is, say, is doing in this teaching is to say that even though the law has been abolished in that it has been fulfilled by his coming, there are still certain requirements that must still remain intact, certain commitments that must still remain intact. And so his point here is though, the point here is that Integrity in our relationships, in all of our relationships, is so vital. God expects us to remain committed. If we are in a marital relationship, difficult as it may be sometimes, God knows sometimes it's difficult, we got to work through those things. we got to stay, commitment, stay committed to one another. We must continue to allow God to make one flesh out of the two of us so that the plans and the will that God has for us, in fact, are fulfilled. Which brings us to the bottom line of our message this morning, that entering into God's kingdom requires humility. It requires humbly receiving the gift of his righteousness. We don't bring our righteousness to God and say, hey God, look at how righteous I am. You must allow me to come in. We come as humbly as a child and receive the gift that he offers us freely. I want to close this message by sharing three quick application points with you. I want to challenge you this morning to punch your ticket for entry into God's kingdom. I'm using a metaphor here, obviously. When you're going on a journey, uh, you must purchase a ticket. If you're going to an entertainment center, you must present your ticket for admission. The same way, I want to challenge you to punch your ticket so that you can be allowed entry into God's kingdom. What Jesus preached was that repentance was the ticket to get in. Repent, change your ways, change your mind, change your heart towards God. Because unless you repent, and become like little children, Jesus says, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We are saved only by allowing God to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our attitude, to give us his righteousness. So this morning, if you're here, and you have never allowed Jesus Christ to save you, if you're watching online as well, this is the perfect opportunity to exchange your unrighteousness or even your righteousness for the righteousness that God wants to offer you through the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. Will you punch your ticket today by allowing Jesus to be your savior? Secondly, I want to challenge you to put away your pride to stay in the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I've discovered that sometimes after humbling ourselves to get into God's kingdom, we again take up pride once we're in God's kingdom. Jesus says that those who humble themselves and keep on humbling themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. I don't believe that there should be any such thing as a prideful Christian. 
They should be only humble Christians who are grateful for the righteousness that God has given to them. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. He says that I am always striving to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that is dependent on faith. So Paul is saying, I am not bringing my own righteousness to offer God because I have nothing that I can offer. I am humbly dependent upon the righteousness that he offers. This is what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He says that pride is the utmost evil. He says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all other vices are mere flea bites compared to pride. Just a little nip on your skin compared to what pride is. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind and the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. We must humble ourselves before God. Living in humility is a requirement of the kingdom. Thirdly and finally, I want to challenge us all to embrace integrity as we serve in God's kingdom. Scripture teaches that although the law is not binding, for us, there are still specific commitments that we are required to keep, an example of which is faithfulness in our marriages. But Paul expanded on that by saying that whatever relationship that you're in, in other words, he says, whatever state you find yourself in, and that includes relationships, he says, be faithful. Because Paul says, are you married? Stay faithful to your spouse. Are you single? Live a life of integrity. Are you a parent or grandparent? Then, indeed, be faithful to your children and your grandchildren in raising them up as best you can in God's knowledge, the knowledge of God. Are you an employer? Treat your employees fairly. Are you an employee? Serve your employer honestly. In whatever state you are, Paul says, serve faithfully. As citizens of God's kingdom, we must do all of these things to the honor and the glory and the praise of our king. Because we're now kingdom citizens. Jesus says that in order for us to get into the kingdom, we must be faithful in doing these three things. Humbling ourselves and becoming as little children. Remaining humble. Being faithful in all of our relationships. Trusting God's righteousness rather than our own. This is what gets us in. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. We ask you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would show each one of us how to go away from here and to apply your word to our hearts. Maybe all of this message is not for all of us. Maybe there is some line, some idea, some thought that you want us to take away from this message. God, help us to be diligent and obedient and to do whatever it is that you're asking of us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.